welcome to Voices from the Grassroots. This is your host, Clay Haran, coming to you pre-recorded from Portland, Oregon. This episode, I will be speaking to my friend Devrim, who just returned from fighting in the Rojava Revolution in Syria with a group called the YPG, also known as the People's Protection Units. Devrim, which is his Kurdish name, has chosen to remain anonymous for the interview. The Rojava revolution is occurring in such an incredibly complex and chaotic context that I'm not even going to pretend to get close to scratching the surface here. But I will try to clarify who the YPG is by giving a brief history of how they came to be and what they are fighting for. So I talked to Devrim about a year ago and he told me he was going to fight in Syria for the Kurds who were at the time a people in a conflict that I knew very little about. Devrim ended up passing me some pamphlets written by Abdullah Ojalan, one of the founders of the Kurdistan Workers Party, also known as the PKK. Ojalan is one of the intellectual fathers of the Rojava revolution and is currently isolated in a small prison off of the coast of Turkey in which he is the sole prisoner. Ojalan's writings were informed in large part by American environmental and political philosopher Murray Bookchin. The Kurds call Ojalan Apo, meaning uncle, and refer to his philosophy as Apoism. So if you're an American and you jive with Ojalan's philosophy, you can call yourself an uncleist. Ojalan's image, in which he appears to be a very huggable, burly guy, is everywhere among Rojava revolutionaries, and there is a Stalinesque cult of personality surrounding him. He even has a giant mustache like Stalin, begging the question, why do these will-to-power figures tend to have bold mustaches? Shout out to Frederick Nietzsche's mustache, by the way. Ojalan was locked up after a botched attempt by Greek authorities to find him asylum in their Kenyan embassy. American intelligence actually played a key role in revealing Ojalan's whereabouts to Turkish authorities, and he was arrested in Nairobi in 1999. If you would like me to send you the pamphlets that contain a summation of Ojalan's thought that was given to me by Devrim, please send me an email at voicesfromthegrassroots at gmail.com. The PKK was involved in conflicts in the 90s that resulted in an estimated 30 to 40,000 dead, according to the New York Times, in a region enveloped by perpetual warfare in a seemingly infinitely complex web of historical, ethnic, geographic, and geopolitical factors. The PKK is considered a terrorist organization by NATO, which includes the United States, the European Union, and Turkey. The PKK, long story short, was driven out of Turkey and the movement for Kurdish autonomy morphed into what we now call the Rojava Revolution in Syria. The Rojava Revolution, both in ideology and in practice, is one of the few authentic efforts at direct democracy happening in the world, but it is occurring tragically in the middle of a state of war and chaos. The primary goals of the constitution set forth in Rojava include environmental sustainability, 
freedom of expression, identity pluralism, women's liberation, the dismantling of patriarchy, and a cooperative, socialized form of governance. Um, I recommend reading the Constitution, which can be found online and will support anyone who is trying to make a schoolhouse rock type song and pre uh, video for the preamble. The Rojava Revolution is occurring through what is called the Movement for a Democratic Syria. One of these relevant groups is the YPJ, which is an all-women's brigade working with the YB YPG to establish democracy in the region. Something that is a matter of dispute here is the relationship of the YPG and YPJ to the PKK, which as I mentioned is classified as a terrorist organization by the United States and its NATO ally Turkey. The conflation of the two groups has been used as a justification to begin a bombing campaign against the Kurdish movement. This bombing campaign began on January 20th, 2018, and is cynically titled Operation Olive Branch. Around the same time as the Turkish delegation to NATO uh, said that these groups were the same, uh, the executive committee member of the Democratic Society movement in Rojava published an article on foreign policy in which he declared that YPG is structurally distinct from the PKK. In this article, the author insists that although the YPG and the Movement for a Democratic Syria is or adheres to Ojalan's ideology, that its leadership and tactics are completely different. Something to consider here is that the United States, who as I mentioned, work with Turkey to arrest Ojalan, is currently supporting the YPG by providing them with airstrikes in their fight against ISIS. So what I see as possibly being a motivating factor in drawing a thick line between the PKK and the Rojava revolution is, is optics. The United States most likely does not want to appear to be funding a group that is or has been directly connected to a so-called terrorist organization. Likewise, the movement for a democratic Syria most likely wants to disassociate itself from the PKK in order to continue receiving that strategic help from the states without any kind of political barriers or outcry. But either way, the point I'm trying to make is that the situation is incredibly murky uh, and even just attempting to understand the identities of the various factions involved in the revolution is pretty confusing. So one thing that uh, made me even more confused about U.S. support for the YPG and what the United States is doing in the region was in 2016, a group called the Knights of Righteousness in Syria that was armed by the CIA was chased out of a town called Marea by a Pentagon-backed group of Syrian Democratic Forces. So basically you have a group that the CIA at one point funded or armed fighting against a group that the Pentagon is backing. Yeah, it's pretty confusing. Thank you.
focus of this interview is the way in which the ideals embodied by the Kurdish movement in Syria are weathering a state of war and chaos. Questions of how Devrim arrived in Syria and who he is as an individual are not answered. What this interview is about is what it's like to be a grunt soldier in the middle of chaos fighting for a revolution. So Devrim, you just uh, returned from fighting in the Kurdish revolution in Syria and Iraq. My first question for you where I want to start is, uh, what group were you fighting for and I guess what were you fighting for? What kind of values or ideals motivated you to go and volunteer and fight in the region? I was with the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces known as the YPG, which is under the SDF. Um, who are fighting for autonomy in North uh, Eastern uh, or North um, Syria in a place called Rojava, which just means West in Kurdish. Uh, the Kurdish diaspora encompasses uh, Rojava, Rojilat, Bakur, and Bashur, which is just North, South, East, and West, uh, and Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. Um, the reasons the reason I went to Rojava to help support the revolution and the effort against ISIS or Daesh as we call them um, was because the democratic and federalist idealism that they're uh, that they're basing the revolution on is consistent with my core values and ethics as a person. Um, so I felt compelled to go and support them there. But it's not my first war. I've gone to other places as well and supported other groups as well, uh, including within the United States. I've been politically active since I was a teenager. So. And uh, a while back, you sent me some pieces by uh, Ogalan. 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 Who seems to be the, uh, the father of a lot of the movements out there. What, did, you, did you come into contact with his work first and that motivated you to? No, well, I'd been following the Kurds a little bit, but I'd been more focused on other struggles in the region um, and elsewhere. Uh, I came across Ajalan through a mutual friend who was already in Kurdistan, and then I read his works. Uh, I think I sent you the, the pamphlets. Yeah. That's just a, it's a small piece of, of his works, but um, the more I read of him, I don't agree with everything he says, but I agreed with uh, enough of it that uh, I, I got, kind of got hooked into it, and the more I read, the more interested I became in seeing what these ideas look like in practice on the ground in uh, Syria and northern Iraq, but it's mostly Syria for Ojalan um, and Turkey. So there's these pretty lofty ideals that guide the revolution. Sure. What, what kind of tensions did you see out there between the theory and the practice? Okay, so the democratic and federalism is, the revolution itself is based on ending patriarchy, ending man's domination over women. Now, we're living, that, that, they're trying to do that in a region that is, Four or five thousand years, probably longer, been dominated by patriarchy in a way that it hasn't been. You know, the United States, for instance, or Europe has moved past a lot of those things. Not all of them. Patriarchy is still firmly in place in the West, but 
women are still property in these countries, in many of these countries. Um, they still marry 11-year-old girls off to old men. They are literally property. So they're trying to undo that, and that's going to take time. So when you say, what did you see in practicality? You see small uh, pushes against that and small uh, bubbles of um, um, progress, but it's very slow going. So they've outlawed child marriage, for instance. The, the YPG and the, the whole area have said, we're not going to do that anymore. And yet, but in the villages, how do you enforce that? And especially when you're coming from a culture where that's all they've known for literally thousands of years. You can't just undo that overnight. So you do see these things. You see these communes pop up uh, that are trying to implement these ideals. And you see these uh, um, politicians come up and these leaders come up. But they're up against... 5,000 years of patriarchy, so it's slow going. So you do see it happening, but it's not as prolific as you'd like to see. It's just very slow going. Um, you know, they, they don't pay feminism lip service. They're like, here's your rifle, go out and demand your freedom. It's, and that's very real. The YPJ are, are all female militia. And if you, if you cross a line with them, they can legally take care of you whichever way they deem necessary. Within the villages and the communities, they have um, uh, a government system, like town hall type government systems, where they reach these consensuses. And these things are happening. But like I said, it's just very slow, slow going. Plus, this is underneath the, the war itself. And war dominates everything. So you may have these ideals about how you want to run your culture and your society and your economy. You can't really do that if you're getting bombed. And you can't really do that if, if uh, militias are, are coming into your village and, and burning you out of there and kidnapping your children or something like this, right? I'm just straight up massacring you. Because war dominates everything, you have to address that first. And some of those ideals get lost in that practicality. You have to deal with the threat, right? So... There's that as well. It's a mess, basically, is what I'm saying. It's not this one cohesive drive where there's a yardstick and it's being measured that way and it's great and it's all moving forward because it's not. And it would be disingenuous to say it is, although some people say it is. That's not what I saw. But you can't expect it to be that way. Anybody who expects that is deluding themselves. Anybody under those kind of threats, economically as well, you know, remember Syria is under economic embargo. These are some of the poorest people in the world. They have nothing. Um, to expect all these ideals to flourish there automatically is just ridiculous. It's going to take a lot of time is what I'm saying. They're taking real steps in the right direction. It's just not, you haven't seen it come to, to fruition yet. Yeah, so you have these uh, deeply rooted cultural problems that you guys are fighting against and sure. it seems interesting that in the philosophy that I've read that these groups that you were working with are trying to espouse it's it's anti-coercion and it's anti-state and anti-hierarchy yes. yes. so it seems like when you have all these deeply rooted cultural things how are you supposed to change that without mm -hmm. some kind of coercive exactly. force or right. and how do you run a war without hierarchy you know, you can't have nine people shouting orders when you're under fire. Everybody's going to die. Somebody has to fucking be the leader. And that typically is the dominant male. That's just how it works in those situations. So, yeah, that's the question. 
you know, and that is a big problem. Um, but they're still working on it. They're still very good at it. I never saw, uh, I saw women being respected out there in a way they're not respected here, for instance. Uh, no, nobody in their right mind would go up to a YPJ fighter and say, nice tits. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? She'll shoot you in the fucking face. Like, they're serious about that. We had an international who showed one of the one of the YPJ fighters porn on his phone, and she almost shot him, and she would have totally been in the right to do so. You know, like that kind of stuff. You don't see that shit happening because they're not. You know, these are these are women that have grown up in war. They're tough. They're not taking shit. They're not taking international shit. That's for sure. They might take shit from the cultural side, like from their father or something, but not from you. You know, like. So in that respect, you do see. That's what's so strange about it. It's just, it's, it's a different, it's a completely different paradigm. You can, and it's hard to, I'm still not Kurdish. I'm a, I'm a Westerner. Even though I've spent a great deal of time in the Middle East and been involved in these things, I will always be a Westerner. That's clear to me. And it's clear to anybody who does this kind of stuff. There are nuances and intricacies about the way people live there that I'll never fully understand. There are things about it I don't agree with, that I find repulsive even, just like I find things repulsive about my own culture here, or any culture, right? But there are great things about it too. I'm just saying my opinion when it comes to that is pretty much uh, irrelevant. I'm just a Westerner, you know. There's no way for me to fully understand that stuff. That's for them to decide, not me. So my opinion about it, I don't, I don't think matters, essentially. So one of the main parts of the movement is, the, is an effort to create harmony between different ethnic groups that have uh, rough history. And I was wondering, I, I know that the movement calls itself a polyethnic one, the Rojava Revolution does. Uh, and I was wondering if you saw any kind of lingering ethnic tension absolutely there yeah we work with arab tabors arab uh units fight right by side with us and a lot of the arabs don't like the kurds and a lot of the kurds don't like the arabs because of their historical you know problems and stuff but it's not they're not openly or outright hostile to each other but they just don't really like each other very much you know what i'm saying because they've been fucking each other over for a long time mostly arabs have been fucking kurds over more than kurds been fucking arabs over so, for instance, here, here's an example. They won't tell you that outright. They're certainly not going to tell a journalist that because they're trying to, you know, tell the world that what their, their experiment there is working. But there's still a lot of problems. I'm not saying it's not working. I'm just saying they're working through these problems. And these are very, very old, very, very deep problems. We, had a, we saw a light one night when we were uh, camped out at, at our FOB, uh, or NACTA. Um, and so... Everybody ran out and they smoked this guy who was trying to sneak past our lines, right? So there's this dead uh, Daesh guy out in the field. And the Arab Tabor started going out there the next day in groups, kind of like, hey, let's go fuck with the body and shit. You know what I'm saying? And that's normal. That's war. You know, it's not, it's not good. It's not something I would partake in, but it's, you can't expect anything less from this kind of, you know, war. And... Eventually, this Kurdish dude comes up and he asks us, why are these groups going out there? And we're like, well, we wasted some guy out there and they're like, you know, taking tours, basically. I don't know what they're doing, but they're fucking with the body. And he's like, unacceptable. And so we went out and we buried him and gave him proper, proper rights. And the Kurdish guy that we were with is like, yeah, you know, those Arabs, they're just all terrorists. 
you know, which you have a, exactly, you have this pause and you're like, well, you know, that's, that's not what this revolution is supposed to be about. But after 10 years of war or whatever, you get tired. You know what I mean? You get, the ideals kind of fade away and you're hungry and tired and miserable all the time. How do you expect people in those conditions to always uphold their values, you know? So what I'm trying to say is that it is an experiment and it is actually going well, all things considered. But it certainly isn't perfect. And there's certainly a lot of problems um, that aren't going to be worked out anytime soon. But as long as people keep taking the steps, eventually they will, I think. So when, when you return, do you feel hopeful that uh, the ideals will, will, will remain and, and, and maybe be realized? Or did, so. you, or did you come home kind of disillusioned? I wouldn't say I'm disillusioned. I'm realistic, you know. You know, after you see this stuff enough, it's hard to not be realistic, put it that way. Anything's possible. But when you're aware of all the variables at play, all the power, uh, the actors who are pulling these people apart constantly, you know, whether it be Russia or China or the U.S., they're under so much pressure from every angle. I don't know how they're going to get out of that until... The way I think about it is there can be no victory there until there's victory here first because there's so much external force exerted on them constantly, culturally, militarily, economically. How can they have you know, that when all these people are constantly fucking with them? Constantly. It's relentless and it's fucking tragic. You know, we're, we do treat that place and those people like a fucking lab where we like implement these experimental policies and, and test our weapons there because they're not worth anything to us. They're just there to get fucked, basically. And that's historically been the case for a while. So I don't, I, am I hopeful? Yes. I wouldn't do what I do if I didn't have hope that things could change. But I'm in a very realistic way, you know, it's going to take a lot to get that stuff off the ground. And it's going to take a lot here, too, and in Europe. They're just going to have to back off eventually if they are serious about having democracy in that region. They have to realize that a big reason why they don't have democracy is because of them, you know, their own problems, their own uh, interventions in the region. When you, when you were fighting out there, I know that the United States just recently started backing uh, Kurdish forces. Sure. In, in their struggle. Did, what was your relationship with the United States? Did you encounter U.S. forces? Yeah, a couple times. Um, we cut, we, uh, there was a Marine fire base um, and artillery that would follow us around, and then, of course, airstrikes in Raqqa. So we'd have a American air pounding Daesh positions 24-7. Um, well, not 20, well, a lot of the time, most of the time. So our relationship to them was we'd see uh, special forces out there and sometimes they would be like, fuck off. And sometimes they'd be like, here's some MREs uh, and here's some equipment or some, because we're a guerrilla force. So all the luxuries that the U.S. military have, we don't have any of that stuff. Oftentimes they would send people out with like one grenade, one magazine, and one rifle. So uh, some of the SDF guy or some of the SF, U.S. Uh, Special Forces guys knew that, were aware of that, would try to hook us up from time to time. But... We didn't have like an open relationship. Me on the ground as a grunt didn't have like a working relationship with the U.S. Our commanders had constant uh, communication with them because we, they needed to coordinate airstrikes. 
and you know how that works. You just need constant communication for that. But yeah, that was the extent of my uh, interaction with U.S. forces out there. You just knew they were there. Well, we've run into them from time to time, and they blow past our positions sometimes in unmarked vehicles. But yeah, you can spot a fucking American out there from a mile away. They're out there. It's funny. I think the ones that we ran into that would be really cold to us, the reason they would be cold to us is because they were doing something that's not they're not supposed to be doing legally, right? So they op they're operating in an area that the U.S. has not admitted to having troops there, for instance, but they're still operating there. And so they see us and they're like, fuck you, go away. Like, just you don't see me here. But if you ran into them in, like a, in the rear at like a field hospital, they'd be super, you know, like, yeah, hey, here, take some shit. And because they're, they are where they're supposed to be, right? When, when Obama or Trump or some fucking State Department guy gets up there and says, we do this and we don't do that, you can just, just brush that off. That's, that's for the housewives and the, the, the house husbands and shit at home. <laughs> that's for civilians. That's not what's actually happening out there, ever. In any war, ever. Because you can't just tell your enemy what you're doing, right? So on the internet. <laughs> and so where would you, if, if somebody who's on the outside who hasn't been inside the conflict, uh, where, like what sources would you recommend to them to try to understand how complex the conflict is? Like where, where can people learn about uh, what's going on there? Well, you could talk, you talk to the Kurds, basically. You talk to the Arabs and the Kurds that live there, if you want a clear picture. But it's, there is no clear one picture. That's what I'm trying to get at. There's so many different things happening all the time in different regions that one day that, you know, this group is your enemy and the next day they're your ally. One day somebody's shooting at you and you, don't, you thought they were your ally. <laughs> you know, who's shooting at us? Who the fuck is even shooting at us right now? You know, there's a st you know, so we, there's no clear comprehensive picture to paint. It's not World War II where here are your lines and here's the bad guys and here's the good guys and like you go out and it's like, you know, this is asymmetrical war in a region that's been fucking torn apart by very extremely powerful forces that the people on the ground aren't even completely aware of, you know? It's just, it's very complicated. So if you wanted like a, a really clear picture of it, I would say you go and you just talk to the people there. You know, that's the clearest picture you're gonna get but you can talk to politicians here, but they're not going to tell you anything because a lot of them don't even know anything about it. So, yeah, it's, it's, you're kind of shooting, you're not kind of looking for a black dog in the night with that kind of question. You know what I mean? like, I have, there was this one time where a buddy of mine was on a fire a guard duty, and he saw what appeared to him to be three Daesh guys uh, planting IEDs on the side of the road. So he called his commander over and his commander looked at it and he said, don't, don't fire. And he's like, why not? They're obviously planting a fucking bomb. That's our route out, by the way. That's our escape route. Why wouldn't you let me fire on these guys? And he's just like, don't fire on them. Just let them go. We don't know why that happened. We don't know who those guys are, or why they were doing what they were doing, or why we were not, or why we were disallowed to to open fire on them. That type of shit happens all the time because there's there's also this undercurrent of other. Uh, uh, as a as a foreigner, I'm not privy to those 
kind of like that kind of information either because I'm still viewed as an outsider. All the internationals are still very much viewed as outsiders. Supportive, allies, yes, but nobody's going to tell you like the deep, dark things about what's going on. You know, why would you? The people around you, did you get a sense that they understood at least a little bit what was going on and all the what? different for all the different dynamics? No, play? we were all very confused all the time. <laughs> Some thought they did. Some thought they did, but I mean, it's it was just war is confusing. It's chaos, you know. It's chaotic. You have like the your drive, the reason you're there. You understand that, um, and that's consistent with what you see. These people are actually trying to, to live this way, and they're actually fighting this enemy, and that's consistent. That's all I needed. Everything else, I didn't expect anything more than that because I've done this before. Some of the younger guys, it seemed like they were very disappointed at how frustrating it was to actually get a clear answer about anything. But I'm just telling them, you're not going to get a clear answer, dude. Like, they're not going to fully trust you. Why would they? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't either. We're, um, I think some people's expectations were, you know, they were kind of disappointed in that. But I don't understand why anybody would think that you were going to get more than that. You know, it's understanding that the situation there is so foreign and alien to what they're coming from from the West, you know, where it's just kind of incomprehensible to some people that you can't just show up to a place and they're going to, like, give you the keys to everything. And shit. But that's a very Western imperialist way, way to fucking think. It's like, well, I'm here fighting for you. Why don't you just tell me what I need to know? Well, because I don't trust you, because you're a fucking Westerner. <laughs> you know, like, why would I give you, like, sensitive information that could be used against me later? You know, shit like that. So it's just common sense to me, but some people had trouble with it. Gotcha. Most of the guys there were, like, most of the guys I was with were ideologically driven. They were leftists, and they wanted to see these things happen. Some of them were just there to kill Arabs. Some of them were straight-up fascists and would tell you so, and they just hate Arabs, and they're just there to kill Arabs. So... There was a big mix, you know, of people. You know, there are war junkies and adrenaline junkies out there. And, shit, and The Kurds don't like that, but if you're a good fighter, why would you not take that guy and let him fight for you, you know? Yeah, that kind of thing attracts all types of characters. What, what, kind, of, what kind of Americans did you see? They out were there? great. Well, there was one that was kind of weird, but, like, the ones I was with were fucking great. Yeah, man. All the internationals train together, but we go to different tabors, different platoons. Uh, and I was with an American for a long time. He was fucking awesome. He was there. We were very much aligned politically. You know, he was a stand-up guy. Fucking, we were there to, you know, fight for what we felt we believed in. Um, there were all types of Europeans there as well. Most of them were fine. You know, it's you get used to a certain lifestyle in the West, and some people struggle with that when they get out in the desert. But beyond, you know, that's to be expected. And some of the guys had no military experience whatsoever, but that's to be expected. You know, had like high anxiety about everything, like couldn't calm down, that type of shit.
So you sent me a photo of you and Raqqa shortly after Syrian Democratic Forces took the city back in late October, early November 2017. Uh, and Raqqa was one of ISIS's or Daesh's main strongholds in the region and was the so-called capital of the Islamic State. I was wondering if that was the YPG's primary objective while you were out there with them. I got there at the tail end of Raqqa. The primary objective was to defeat ISIS. That's the primary objective, and to defend the revolution from anybody who might threaten it. Um, so I was there when, in Raqqa, when Daesh finally surrendered and we recaptured the city. From there, we went into the desert and we chased, we chased ISIS into the desert after that. So we just, in the desert and around Deir Azor, we were assaulting these little villages in a string, basically, and just recapturing these villages from Daesh. But these were Arab lands, they weren't Kurdish lands. And the idea is that we need to, you know, root out the problem, which is ISIS at the moment, but these are still Arab lands that we're taking. And that was another contradiction that I had trouble with because this was a land grab. I was part of the land grab. Raqqa is an Arab city. These are Arab lands we're taking, but we're a Kurdish militia. Okay, this is a problem. What it, is this a land grab? Is this like a power play? Are they gonna use these, this, these lands as a tokens to trade with when ISIS is finally defeated? Or are they just gonna hand them back to the Arabs because that would be aligned with your ideology. You know, so I had, I had conflict about that. We had prisoner taking operations where we would go into these what were essentially uh, refugee camps and arrest these Gundi Daesh or these, these country, you know, you know, who we suspected to be of being Daesh. Were they? I don't know. There's no way for me to know that. I just have to trust that, you know, the commands that are coming down have like legitimate information or acting ethically as we go in and terrify children <laughs> and take their fathers and, you know, lock them up in our fucking APCs and drive away with them and shit. There were times where I felt like a cop, you know, it was very disconcerting in that, in that regard because I went to defend people and defend families. I thought I'd be at, sitting at a post defending a, 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 an area. You know, not taking land, but that's, an, that's what I'm doing. But, you know, I'm not saying it's wrong, but because you have to defeat the enemy where they're at, right? But what are the Kurds going to do with that area when, when it is done? Are they going to leave? Are they going to keep it? Are they going to be conquerors? Or are they going to be what Abdullah wants them to be, you know? I'm curious to hear how you and others were grappling with the idea that civilians and innocents were dying in this conflict and I I'm wondering whether you were thinking yourself or having the conversation with others about whether the ends justify the means. We thought about that every day because we were uh, seeing things that contradicted what we thought to be the ethical thing but also understanding that you can't go into a war imagining that it's going to be ethical because war itself is unethical. Um, the problem here and the goal should be to not fight these wars, you know. They'd, it's a disease and there's nothing good that comes out of it. Um, and anybody who tells you different either has a fucking screw loose or doesn't know what they're talking about. You know, I have I got into this conversation at a bar with a guy who was telling me about his army buddy who served in Iraq. And he was asking me about my experiences and he was very like, he, w he wasn't happy with my responses for some reason. He was drunk, but he started saying, well, he was saying that it's badass. 
you know, going and fighting is badass. And he kept saying badass and shit. And I was like, yeah, dude, because it's not in your fucking home. You might, if you're of that mentality, then you can join the army. You can go to someone's home, fuck their shit up, and come home to your nice fucking prissy life. But your family isn't dead and your house isn't burnt down. You know what I mean? Like, so fuck you. <laughs> I can't stand that shit. It is exciting. It's the most exciting shit you can probably experience. But that shouldn't be more important than other people's right to a fucking life, you know? It's, it's murder at the end of the day. It's homicide. It's, it's fucking chaos. It's destruction. Um, and nothing good comes out of it except, you know, some warlords get rich. And I mean that from the U.S. side. U.S. warlords get rich. Weapons manufacturers get rich. Politicians get their policies passed. Whatever. People on the ground always lose. Everybody down there loses. And the goal should be to end that. You know, so yeah, DICE is a problem. You have to get rid of them and shit. But they're a symptom of the real problem, not the real problem itself. A lot of Americans have this idea about war and they watch too many movies or they got beat up as a kid or something. I don't fucking know. You know, but anybody who tells you that war is a good thing in any regard is, is full of shit, in my opinion. You know, there's nothing, you know, a lot of courageous things happen in war, but it's minuscule compared to the damage that's done. The people that profit from war, the people that push it, should be the real enemy, not these fucking poor people who have nothing and can't read. <laughs> uh, how do you and others, how did you guys stay sane out there? How did you keep a level head? Your sense of humor is all you got. That's the only thing you... If you're not laughing, you're fucked. I watch my guys. I spent most of my time just trying to keep myself and my guys safe and alive. You know, kill enemies, sure, but my primary thing was like, let's not get killed over some dumb shit. Let's stay vigilant, you know. Uh, humor is like, that's the only thing that keeps you sane, really. And if I saw someone in my, in my group that um, was starting to lose their humor, that's like a red flag, you know, because you get depressed out there really fast. And... Because there's, you can be killed at any time or forced to kill at any time because these horrible things are always happening, you have to laugh about it because it's just so goddamn fucking, you know, overwhelming and stressful. You know, we, we, we were ambushed, right? It all happens so fucking fast. You don't have time to feel it in the moment. You just use your training and you react, you know? And several times these things would happen and then it wasn't until after that it hit you what actually happened and shit, you know, like there are dead people now and I could have been killed and uh, my friends could have been killed. Uh, what the fuck just happened? What the fuck is going on, right? It's just too much, right? And you realize you're in, you automatically go into survival mode, which is your brain just kind of compresses everything and puts it away, right? And you just have to laugh at it. You just have to keep laughing at it to keep your spirit up, just to keep your psychology, you know, good and your morale up so that you can... When you're attacked again, you don't just fall apart and you're able to respond. You know, it's survival at that point. And humor is essential for most people, not everybody. They're different personalities. For me, it is.
Were there, were there uh, like therapists and shit out there? Fuck, <laughs> no, 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 dude, we went to a martyr funeral once where they're burying several dead and my commander looks at me and goes, Kurds never cry. Well, that's the attitude. There's certainly no therapists out there, you know, walking around. You, your buddies are your therapists, you know, your, your unit is, they're your therapists. You rely on them to keep you alive, and you keep them alive, and that's how it goes. But I mean, Raqqa was destroyed. It was straight up fucking, just every other building was just collapsed. There's just death everywhere, and there's fucking cats everywhere because the cats eat the corpses. It was like a city of cats, <laughs> you know? So we had like therapy cats. Oh, and a puppy almost killed me. I woke up to a puppy like chewing on my hand grenade, and I just had this thought about being killed by a puppy. So we kept the puppy. We like took him to like three, di three different villages. But yeah, so we had like therapy puppy to like, you know, pet. So. <laughs> So I wanted to end by asking you what you think activists and organizers in the states who are interested in experimental democracy and direct democracy, what we can learn from the Rojava revolution. Commitment. That's the biggest thing. What they've accomplished, they've accomplished because of their devotion and commitment to what they're trying to do, uh, to each other and to what they're trying to do. Meaning... There's a lot of half-assed shit happening here in the States. And you can't fucking kill a dragon with a toothpick. So if you really want to change things, you have to commit your life to it. You have to devote everything you have to it. And that means not giving up a lot of the comforts that consumer capitalism uh, offers. And it's a hard sell for anybody. I mean, fucking most of the people I know in the Middle East want to come here <laughs> so they can have that shit. Who wouldn't, right? But if you really want to change things, that's what you got to do. You got to devote yourself and commit yourself 100% to it. You got to give your life to it. That's what it takes to change shit. That's why things don't change here, because people aren't that committed yet. They will be, I think. But they're too comfortable here. It's too easy to fucking to walk away from it, I guess. You know, in, in Syria, if you walk away from it, somebody might shoot you and shit. Not your own people. It's just you either fight or die. You know, you either fight or you're a slave, essentially. And here it's like, yeah, I went to the protest, you know, and then I went back to my job. And I have kids to feed, fuck you. <laughs> like, I don't have an answer is what I'm saying. Like, I don't, I don't know what to tell people to uh, inspire them or, or, you know, any wisdom to tell them, like, this is what we need to do in order to change things, because I don't fucking know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. That's why I go do these things in different places. But what I learned in Syria to answer your, your question is that the devotion that they have to each other and to their cause is very inspiring. I think that's what it takes. You know, they're just not gonna, they're not gonna capitulate and they're not gonna um, compromise these things. They believe in what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah.
So the point here is, is that the movement has made some strides, but the necessities of war are forcing it to betray some of its fundamental ideals. And the movement has received a lot of positive press in the States and in Europe, but it's important to recognize some of the more negative aspects of the movement in order to get a realistic picture of what's happening out there. In the interview, Devin mentions that he was ordered to assault villages. And what I found interesting about that was that there's an Amnesty International report from 2015 in which they entered into 14 different villages to investigate uh, reports of forced displacement and demolition of homes. And the story, according to the report, goes that a few members of the YPG would enter into a village and cite concerns for the people in the village's security or accuse them of being members of ISIS or being affiliated with ISIS, forcibly remove them from the home and then demolish the home. And this is something that Amnesty International calls village raising, which is a war crime. Human Rights Watch also notes abuses by the YPG, such as the use of underage soldiers, prisoner abuse, and cases of arrest without due process. Human Rights Watch does concede in saying that although the YPG's abuses are serious, that relative to other crimes constantly occurring in the region, what they've done is far less egregious. Other barriers or examples of selling the movement's ideology short include the YPG's affiliation with the Syrian regime. The Syrian regime has actually been opposed to Kurdish autonomy historically, but provides support to them in their fight against ISIS. Having a reliance on a regime that systematically attacks its own civilian population and doesn't support the democratic movement will most likely be a barrier to the success of the revolution. If you would like more information about the barriers that the movement faces, I have a variety of scholarly articles that I can send you that are really interesting. So if you would like some of those, please send me an email at voicesfromthegrassroots at gmail.com. Also, if you have any questions, please send me an email. And one thing we can all do to support the Rojava revolution is to call our representatives and tell them to push back against Turkish bombing campaigns against the Kurds. Another thing you can do is call your representative and generally support peace in the Middle East. The intro track was produced by myself, and the song you hear throughout the episode is titled Variations on a Kurdish Theme, and it's by Turku, Nomads of the Silk Road. And that does it for this episode. Thank you for listening. This is Clay with Voices from the Grassroots signing out. Until next time.